All right, please take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We, believe it or not, are going to be done, Lord willing, with a chapter 1 uh, this uh, evening. And I'm excited about that because sometimes it takes an awful long time for me to get through a chapter. And here we are at the end of chapter 1. And uh, we'll be going to chapter 2 pretty soon. Chapter 2 is just packed, man. You know, I, I'm, I, I, part of me wants to run ahead of chapter 2 because it's just so beautiful uh, and so powerful and so, so much wisdom there. But chapter 1 is equally as strong. And in chapter 1, it would be hard to know maybe if you're not really paying attention, which you have been paying attention as you've been here, that there's such a strong emphasis on correct biblical doctrine in the pastoral epistles. I try to encourage people because the, the, the wave of today that's so popular in a lot of, for instance, the charismatic movement, and we consider ourselves charismatic. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but we consider ourselves non-charismatic charismatics. And by that, I mean we don't run with the charismania that's so popular out there with Hillsong and Bethel and all that. We try to keep close to the Scripture, amen. And uh, we want to walk in the power of the Spirit and believe all that God has for us and do all that he wants us to do. Uh, at the same time, there's so many winds of doctrine out there. Uh, a lot of people don't really care about doctrine anymore. Doctrine doesn't really matter. When they're saying that, they're saying teaching doesn't matter. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ that said that we need to build our lives on the rock, amen? And that rock is his teachings, amen? amen. The wise man who didn't build his life on the sand, right, which was, his house was destroyed, the wise man builds his life, he says, Jesus, on his words. Jesus' words, amen. So we have to take his word very seriously. But sometimes I, when I talk to somebody who doesn't think Jesus teaching, the Bible's teaching is very important, it's more about experience and so forth, I'll remind them and say, hey, you know, did you know almost every New Testament letter, every gospel was written to correct either false doctrine or wrong living? if not everyone, to one degree or another, if not just false doctrine or wrong living, usually it's both, right? Because it's the word of God, and he's correcting us, and we're his children. So it's interesting when that you begin the pastoral epistles. First and second Timothy, for instance, Paul tells Timothy that he left him at Ephesus, that he might not only establish elders, which he mentions later, but he doesn't mention that from the get-go, but he might teach people or warn people not to teach strange doctrines, Amen. And then there's a lot of emphasis on the true gospel here and not get into the law of Moses as a means of salvation and so forth. And, and he really emphasizes sound doctrine. He does that throughout 1 Timothy, throughout 2 Timothy, which is really interesting because here is Paul instructed Timothy, the pastor, at least the temporal pastor of this church at Ephesus for a time after he appoints elders and so forth. God may have more work for him after the church at Ephesus, but uh, in 2 Timothy, you have a similar emphasis. Then when you get to Titus, the last of the three pastoral epistles, if one is going to be an elder, one of the qualifications is that he is able to refute false doctrine, that he knows the word and is able to correct those who are in error because there are people that are upsetting the faith. There are people that are up overturning entire households, you know, and people are being destroyed. Because bad doctrine leads to bad living, amen? Just watch the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses go down the street scuttling themselves away from God's kingdom into lake of fire because 
Sometimes it's because people don't think doctrine matters and they don't do anything about it and try to say, hey, wake up. Or perhaps they didn't test their doctrine against, you know, the Bible. Uh, I was witnessing, that wasn't even going to mention this, but I was witnessing to a gal today because I was at the dentist and, uh, and I witnessed to another lady uh, last time I was there, which was a month and a half ago or so, and then uh, she came in and said, you need to tell her what you're telling me, you know? And I go, oh, thank you. She just opened the door. I'm just listening to her telling, you know, I, I witnessed her as well. And it was nice talking to both of them. And, and the other one would come back in. And then I'd see her peeking if the other lady's listening. And, and she told me that she's a former Jehovah Witness, you know, and that she left the watchtower and then she went back to the watchtower, the Jehovah Witness organization and so forth. And I started sharing with her why it's, it's off, you know. And she said, I've been, my son became a born-again Christian. You sound like him. He tells me the same thing, you know. So I told her, I said, hey, I don't spend time uh, with women alone, but I'd love it if you're open to it. My wife and I will get together with you and discuss, you know, the differences, you know. And we had a great talk, you know. And we want to love the people who are lost, amen. These are people for whom Jesus died. I really believe every time you see another human people, Another human people. Another, <laughs> another human person. <laughs> By the way, it's funny because somebody was just kind of razzing me because they say, you say mind blow instead of blow mind. Or, no, I say blow mind instead of mind blow. <laughs> That's what it is, you know. And you know what I actually did? Everybody, people for a long time, they're saying, it's, it's, it's mind blow, not blow mind. But they said, but I like that you they always say, I like how you say blow mind though. And then you know what I did? I put mind blow in parentheses on Google and it came up, a lot of times. Then I put blow mind in there, and it comes up like four times as many times. Okay, I don't know. Maybe Google's lying. I don't know. I'm like the other. So somebody else is saying at least four to one, but then blown or mind blown with an N at the end, that comes up about three, four times more than mind blow. So any of them will work, you know. I don't know if the guy that said it first patented it, you weren't allowed to say it any other way. But, uh, but there's so many people out there that need the gospel, amen. And, and that's our job right? But the church is also a hospital, and it's many, many things. We're a travel agency, amen? amen? We sign people up for heaven, or we get them to come to Jesus so they can be heaven-bound. We're a restaurant. We serve the food and the milk and the water, right? But that's all of us, all, all working in tandem together. Now, it's really interesting that as we come to the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's been emphasizing, now there's a really interesting flow here, First, he begins telling people not to, you know, telling Timothy to warn people not to teach, teach these strange doctrines, right? And then in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, amen? A good conscience, right? And a sincere faith. But right from the get-go, he lets us know that there are those who have already gone astray from the godly instruction. And so in verse 6, he says right after that, for some men strained from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. So there are those who have gone astray, turned, went astray and turned aside, meaning they were once there. They were once in orthodox teaching, but they've gone aside. He talks about how they misuse the law and how they use the law and they misuse it not realizing that the law was given for the unrighteous, not the righteous, amen? And we had a whole message or so on that where 
The law is meant to teach people that they are unrighteous and they need to come to who? Jesus. It's a tutor. We can't be saved by the law of Moses. It's a tutor that leads us to Christ. Amen? And then we went from there uh, to look at how, you know, how people misuse the law. Today we have the Hebrew Roots Movement, for instance, that tells people, and how many have run into them? You've got to keep the Sabbath or you're not saved, you know? I mean, if you've done a lot of witnessing or sharing or you've been around other professing Christians, there are a lot of people today putting themselves under the law of Moses. And we got into that and said, hey, that's, that's wrong. And then I love it because then what Paul does, he shifts gears and he says, hey, this is what salvation looks like. It's not by the law. He says it's, it's you know, for a faithful saying worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I was what? Or I am what? Chief. Amen. And he said that God saved him to show all of us that we too could be accepted. Amen. That whoever would come to Jesus could be accepted. That's good news. Because when I was a brand new Christian, I didn't know any Christians. And I was a really bad guy before I became a Christian. I had a real sense of strong conviction of the horribleness of my sin and my rebellion against God, not even believing the biblical God existed. And I was like, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm like, you know, I didn't know who to even talk to. I was just reading my Bible. I think it was a good thing because I was just reading my Bible by myself, my lonesome, but not by my lonesome. The Holy Spirit was there. And I remember just crying when I was going through the Gospel of John. And I was a hard guy, I thought, you know. 17, 18, right around eight, just turning 18, right around there. And I'm like crying. I'm like, man, I don't cry, but I'm crying because of what Jesus went through. And then I'm seeing Jesus say, whoever comes to me, I won't cast away. Like, wow, well, I'm whosoever, right? I'm whoever. And then it's when I got to that passage, man. Paul's saying, and I was seeing what Paul was doing, you know. And he says, I'm the worst sinner of all. But God saved me, Joe. Right? Ivan. Adele, Jim, Greg, all of you guys, that whoever comes to him could be what? Would be accepted, amen? You could put your name there. I was just sharing with a gal uh, when uh, we were driving to the retreat. James Jackson was driving. He said, hey, can you talk to a, a friend of mine, you know, and, and encourage this person? And I, I said, sure. And it was like a two-hour conversation we had on FaceTime as we're driving up the Sequoias. And she had struggled with whether Jesus died for her or not whether she could really know objectively whether or not she could be saved. And she said she got help from the book of Colossians. And there was a tear that came down her face. My heart just broke, you know. And I just shared a bunch of scriptures with her about Jesus' death for her, for everyone. And a lot of these scriptures, I took her first initial, and I said, that's a, that's a, I used the first initial of her name. That's a, like if I was talking about myself, I'd say that's a J verse. But I used her initial. And she knew what I meant. I said, put that letter everywhere you see these verses because it says whosoever, right? Whoever, whosoever, that those verses are for you. Amen? Those verses are you, for you. And Renee, you went through that, right? You know, you came out of some of the same stuff, some same stuff I came out of. And the enemy attacked you the same way. And those types of verses, because the enemy wants to blind you to the, the just the extensive bountiful grace of God. I've realized early on that a lot of people battle whether Jesus died for them or not. But all we got to do is study the scripture, amen? It's real clear. So I love that passage, and I was tempted to stay there for weeks, but I'm trying not to do that through Timothy uh, too long. So we looked at that, and we looked at his praise and so forth. Then we arrived at verse 18 last time we were in 1 Timothy. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. And we went through that, that verse. 
And then last time, I'm sorry, the second to last time we we're together, that was that time. Last time we we're together in this verse, we were verse 19. Keeping what? Keeping faith and what? A good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now this is heavy because Paul is a pastor, or he's, he's, a, he's many things, I'm sorry, he's an apostle, right? He has a pastoral type role as a shepherd, right? But he's not a pastor of a local church, but he's an apostle, he's a prophet, he has all these different giftings, but he's so jealous for people's souls, does not want them to go astray. So in verse, when we get to verse 19, he says to Timothy at the end of verse 19 or verse 18, fight the good fight, right? So he's saying in accordance with the prophecies made to you, and we talked about the gift of prophecy, how that's not done away with. How do we know it's not done away with? Because Jesus says when they bring you before rulers in the end times during the time of the Antichrist, Mark 13, don't premeditate what you'll say. The Holy Spirit will give you utterance and speak through you. Amen. And then we also saw that there's two prophets who prophesy for 1,260 days in Revelation 11. Amen? So we're not cessationists. We believe God still uses the church. But we're also not sensationalists. And we don't believe that their apostles like the 12 apostles are today. Amen? There could be an apostolic type calling, but you're not like one of the 12. Right? Because there's tw how many names are in New Jerusalem? The 12 tribes, but also the 12 what? Apostles. Not the 14,431 apostles, okay? And they had a unique ministry because to be qualified to be one of the 12, you had to have seen the Lord Jesus, it says, and be a witness to his resurrection. And Paul was an apostle born out of due time, like the 13th. And he says, do I not do the miracles of an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord, right? So the, the other extreme is to say, hey, you know, I'm an apostle. I'm Apostle Frank. If you were really apostle, you wouldn't have to introduce yourself to me as an apostle, by the way. I would just see all these miracles and I would have evidence that you're, man, how old are you? Oh, yeah, you're like 2,000 years old. Okay, maybe you are. John, you didn't die after all. Man. So it's interesting, but look at what he says here. Let's read verses 18 and 19, catch the flow. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you might fight the good fight. Be armed to fight the good fight. And in 1 Timothy 6, 12, he says, fight the good fight, lay hold on eternal life, amen, to which you are called and you profess the good profession. And then he says in verse 19, he's telling this to who? Who's he talking to? Paul to who? Timothy. Keeping what? Keeping faith and what? A good conscience. Which some have what? Rejected and What? Suffered shipwreck in regard to their what? Faith. So their faith is depicted as what? A ship. And what happened to their faith? It was shipwrecked on the, on the rocks of false doctrine. Now notice the flow here. Notice the flow. First few verses, warn people not to teach strange doctrines, right? Verse five, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a pure faith. The very next verse, of which some have what? Gone astray and have turned aside to fruitless discussions. In other words, they were abiding. They were abiding in the good instruction. Then they went astray from it, turned aside to fruitless discussions. When you don't continue 
in the faith and you go aside and you become fruitless, that's a scary place to be. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me will what? Bear much fruit. But he that does not abide in me, he says, will be dried up, shriveled up, dried up, right? Cut off, thrown in the fire, burned. Well, these guys have gone astray. Now, them going astray is not the end of it, though, because we do believe people can come back to the faith, amen? They can come back to Jesus. But notice something very interesting here. Verse 5, this is the goal, right? Love from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have gone astray and turned aside. What's happened here? Timothy, right? Keep what? He mentions two things. Keep what? A good conscience and what? Faith. Are you catching the, are you catching the parallel? He brings up uh, a good conscience again. He brings up faith again. And then he mentions those who have gone astray again. Look what he says. Keep me faith, verse 19 to Timothy, and a good conscience, which some have what? Rejected and suffered what? Shipwreck in regard to their faith. So they rejected a good conscience, right? They rejected keeping the faith. They didn't continue in the faith, amen? And they've shipwrecked their faith. Now put it together. What happens in verse 5 when you leave? Good conscience, sincere faith, love from a pure heart. You go astray. You go into fruitless discussions. And you go into the law in this context. These guys went into the law as a means of salvation. Unless Paul's bringing up two people totally unrelated to what he's been talking about earlier, it seems to me, because a lot of people say we don't know what their heresies were. And I'm like, I don't know, man. You know, I think we can get an idea of what the heresies were. It looks like these are the guys that went back to think you had to keep the law of Moses. At least that's what happened in verse 5 to 6 to 7. And there's a parallel there, right? We can't know for sure because it is possible that Paul's introducing two people that are unrelated to the people in the discussion that had already gone astray. But it's likely he has these, this same group in mind, although I believe there's more to the heresy than we're talking about because there's more revealed, I believe, later in 2 Timothy about the heresies these men fell into. And we need to beware. We look at Hymenaeus. We need to look at, look at Alexander because these are two men that are mentioned and say, man, Lord, help that not happen to me. It helped me to understand when people go into this. And I'm telling you right now, you guys, it's imperative that we talk about the truth and, and what's going on here in the scripture because it relates to this day. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talked about how they fell in the wilderness before and they didn't enter the promised land and they were written down as examples so we could draw a line from us to them so we wouldn't fall in the same way they fell. Remember that? If those things in the Old Testament were written for us, how much more of the things in the New Testament, things that happened in the early church, should we draw a line to, amen, and say, don't let that happen to you? Because I've had people come into this fellowship more than once saying, oh, you guys should be teaching, you got to keep the Sabbath. You know? I've had people say, oh, man, we should be on the Jewish dietary law. No seafood or shelled, shelled fish and stuff like that. You know? I had a guy, he didn't go to the church, but I saw him at my uh, father-in-law's 50th year birthday party. And Lisa and I were there, and everybody's there, and I, he's telling me for 45 minutes how we should not even eat meat. And God gave us, you know, the, 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 the state bird should be a turkey, not an not a eagle, because eagles are predators. And it was kind of interesting talk. And I was like, okay, Lord, help me exercise love in 1 Corinthians, you know, and also Romans chapter 14 with somebody who doesn't think you should eat meat and be kind, be a good example, 
Then I get in line at the buffet thing they had. You know, they have those catering things at these kind of parties. And man, I was just loading up on salad in front of him. But I was like, oh, I want to eat that meat. But this guy, I'm trying to talk to him more about Jesus. So he might stumble until I looked at his plate. It was full of meat. No kidding. And I looked at him. I said, whoa, under the hypocrite. No, I didn't say that to him. I thought that though. I went, Whoa, man, that's hypocritical. What are you doing? You know? And I, I have to be honest, and I you know, got rid of my lettuce and stuff. I kept a little bit there, but I just got, you know, I got the meat. I go, he's not serious. You know? It was so weird. <laughs> so weird. But you know what? We're supposed to be sensitive to those people who are, have wrong beliefs and, and love them, but at the same time, we're supposed to stand on the truth. Amen? Now, it's interesting. When Paul says to Timothy, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith, he goes on to identify them in verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus, Humanaeus in the Greek, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have what? Handed over to Satan so that he will be taught, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So we notice it's likely they went back to the law in some way at least, but one thing is for sure, they're blasphemers. They're blasphemers. They're blaspheming uh, the biblical teaching and God and coming against God's word, his truth. And they've been handed over to Satan. They've been handed over to Satan. That's heavy stuff. Being handed over to Satan. Now, this is pretty heavy. You may think about it. What's going on here? Timothy, would you guys agree Timothy was saved? Yes. What's Timothy being warned not to do? Not to, be, not to shipwreck his faith as who did? Hymenaeus and Philetus. Oh, I'm sorry, in this case, Hymenaeus and who? Alexander, right? If you were Timothy, would you take that as though that's a possibility? Don't do what they did. Yeah, of course you would, okay? It's a paranetic warning. It's, don't, don't let that happen to you. Don't shipwreck your faith like these guys did. Now, it's important to understand at this point that we need to understand what the text says because if when you read commentaries, they could be all over the place. You want to test everything. You want to test the different viewpoints and, and so forth. Uh, there's three main views. There is one view that it's impossible to shipwreck your faith. Can't really do it. If you have saving faith, it's impossible. That's one view. Uh, a second view is that you can shipwreck your faith, but it's okay if you shipwreck your faith and turn away from Christ and become a blasphemer because in the end you'll still get rewards or you'll just lose some rewards. That's a second view. A third view is it's actually possible to shipwreck your faith. Uh, we hold the third view in our fellowship because we believe just right off the page what's taught and uh, we don't try to get around certain clear verses, you know. So, I love people, if whatever, if, if, the people that disagree with that viewpoint, there's, there's reasons they would disagree with it, that you could actually shipwreck your faith. Others that you can, would say, no, you can't shipwreck your faith, but it's okay, it's not good, but you'll just lose rewards. There's reasons people have these different views, and we have to understand when we're studying scripture and so forth, that people have different views, and it's not like they just, you know, come to them on accident. Sometimes they're trying to reason their way through the scriptures. We need to love people, right? work through things and so forth. But we also need to know what the scriptures say. Uh, now, many of those who teach that, well, you can't really shipwreck your faith, they'll still warn people not to allow their faith to be destroyed. 
And I appreciate that. They're at least still warning them, even though warning isn't maybe going to be as severe as it should be because you're saying on one hand, don't shipwreck your faith, but you can't do it anyway, you know, if you're really, if you're really saved, you know. So uh, let's look at, I believe, you definitely can positively shipwreck your faith. And two people did here, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And I also believe Paul's warning Timothy not to let the same thing to happen to him, to happen to them. Amen? I mean, that's pretty obvious here. So here's, here's, some, here's some reasons I believe that these two men did indeed shipwreck their faith. Well, let's just read verses 19 and 20 again. What does it say? To Timothy, keeping faith and a good conscience. You keep them. In other words, you may not be, you may not keep them. Keeping faith and a good conscience, he's not saying it's automatic, which some have rejected and what? Suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith. Who? Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Notice that they're being handed over to learn a lesson. So they'll be taught not to blaspheme. Does it look like God is just saying to hell with you guys? That's not the heart of God, you guys. And when people get involved in false teaching, you don't just to hell with them. They were never saved in the first place or God must not have loved them or Jesus must not have died for them or no, these are people I believe for whom Christ died. Paul warned not to cause your brother to stumble with your eating if you think you can eat something they think you can, or drinking, you can think you have a little wine, they think you can't. Or not to cause them to stumble because you don't want to cause to perish or destroy your brother for whom Christ died. We need to care about those who don't see things exactly the way we see things. We also want to be humble and say, Lord, maybe I'm not seeing things clearly, amen? Help me be humble and understand and grow, amen? Now it's interesting though, I want to give you 10 reasons, 10 when I was done, I'm like, man, I got 10 reasons that shipwrecking your faith is a real possibility. Number one, and I'll reiterate a couple points I already made, but I'll put them within the 10 reasons. Paul speaks to those who went astray from a pure heart of love and a sound mind in 1 Timothy 1, 5, and 6. So those ones, when he's saying to keep these things, don't go astray, shipwreck your faith, he speaks of those who actually did that and went astray from those things in, chapter, in verse 5 and especially verse 6. Number two, Paul states to Timothy that he is to hold a good conscience and, and, uh, and faith, showing himself to be a believer and, and that he indeed can indeed go astray. He's warning him not to go astray. I don't tell my children, don't run in the street, you know, uh, if it's impossible for them to run in the street. It wouldn't make sense. Number three, he points out to Timothy that He's not to shipwreck his faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander did. Don't let that happen to you. He gives them as examples. Number four, Hymenaeus and Alexander did indeed shipwreck their faith. He states that they had shipwrecked their faith. Some say, well, they really never had faith in the, to begin with. If they shipwrecked their faith, they must never really had it. That's, it. It's impossible to shipwreck a non-existent ship. Would you agree? Amen. I mean, let's just be real. You can't shipwreck a non-existent ship, you know? And he's not saying, well, you know, someone say, well, their faith must not have been real. If somebody has a fake faith and I think they're phony, I'm going to tell them to shipwreck that right away. Get rid of that faith. Amen? If somebody does not really believe and I think they're phony, I'm going to say, hey, man, you've been coming to church a long time, man, but every time I drive down LA Avenue, I see you at Snooky's and you're, and you're walking out drunk and everything and you've got two girls in your arms and your wife's at home. 
if you happen to be here and that's happening, that happens sometimes. I just say something and it's just God. No, I'm sure no one's doing that, right? <laughs> Someone's like, who is that? You know? I try to be real outlandish because sometimes people say, were you talking to me? People say that all the time. So I try to be a little more outlandish so it doesn't land on anybody. If that landed on you, of course, you should know you need to repent right away. But if, I, if somebody, and somebody says, but I'm a believer, I would say, that's not genuine belief. I wouldn't worry about that person's belief being shipwrecked. They need to get shipwrecked, that false faith, amen? Obviously, he's talking about shipwrecking genuine faith, amen? Because that's the, what's a jeopardy there. So that's number four. Uh, they indeed did shipwreck their faith, and it's impossible to wreck a ship if the ship does not exist. Number five. And by the way, I just got some feedback on, that, on the message, and now we're in verse 19. We're, we're verse 19 last time, now we're verse 20. And Eric Blackwell, who was at the retreat, he said, I was sharing some of the scriptures you shared in your last message with a person who believes that, you, you know, that, you know, that as far as shipwrecking your faith, that it's not a big deal because, I didn't say it's not a big deal, but you're, you, you can still be okay if you shipwreck your faith. And without your faith, without your faith being, after your faith, faith is shipwrecked, it's not, you, you know what? He said, you can still swim. That's what he told Eric. I go, still swim? He goes, yeah, is that crazy? No, guys. If your faith is shipwrecked, you will not be able to swim your way to heaven. Amen. We don't, get, we don't get saved on our own effort. The reason we're saved by grace through faith is we're saved through what Jesus did on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Amen. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're saved. Amen. Amen. So it's by grace through faith. You have to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. You can't shipwreck your faith and say, I can swim still to the kingdom. I can swim to heaven. And I didn't have to, I mean, Eric was telling me, he goes, that's ridiculous. Don't you think? I'm like, yeah, of course, man. He's shaking his head. So, and apparently that was perhaps one who believed you could shipwreck your faith and just lose some rewards or what have you. I wouldn't know Eric Blackwell, who was visiting us from Idaho. Uh, he would know more in depth as to what that guy, where that guy was coming from. But Lord, help us all to see better, amen? So fifth, these men were in fact handed over to who? To Satan. That's revealing that Paul put them out of the church. So these two men had at one time belonged to the church, but he, in fact, handed them over to Satan, revealing that they had originally escaped the domain of Satan after having once been under his power. See, before you come to Christ, whose power are you under? Satan's. When you come to Christ, you're delivered from Satan's power. So if these people were handed over to Satan, they obviously had escaped at one point, and that's what happens to the true believer. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Amen? And it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were once under Satan's power, right? When you came to God, came to the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? You were rescued from the domain of darkness, transported in the kingdom of his glorious son, amen? And you were rescued from Satan's power because we're under the prince and the power of the air, and now we are in the body of Christ. And we're in the, in the kingdom of God, amen? And it's beautiful, we're part of the body of Christ. But if you turn from the Lord and you shipwreck your faith, guess what? You go back into the enemy's dominion. And I'm not saying right away, but in this case, Paul exercised church discipline and handed them over to Satan's dominion. Number six, we never see anywhere in Scripture that I've seen people who already belong to Satan then being handed over to him. They're already under Satan's power. 
You get that, Jim? Doesn't make, right? If you already, you know, we don't see in scripture where people that belong to Satan are then handed over to him. He, he, they're already in his hands, amen? Number seven, they are being disciplined by the Lord, which is what the Lord does to who? His children, those who belong to him. Doesn't discipline the wicked as children. They don't belong to him. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 and verse 8 says, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone who accept, he accepts as a son. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So if you're not disciplined, you say, wow, I've been rebellion to God all these years and I never get a spanking. Well, that sounds like you haven't been born again then. Just, I'm just saying, if you're in rebellion to God and you're not getting disciplined, then you need to get saved. But if you've been spanked, right, and you're like at opportune times in your walk, and you're like, wow, I, I need to get right with God. God's like warning me. That's one of the evidences that you belong to him. Well, these guys are being disciplined. It's called church discipline. They're being handed over to Satan's kingdom. By the way, when you're, with, when you're in the kingdom of God and you're walking with your brothers and sisters in the light and you're not under Satan's power, amen, it's beautiful. But when someone's excommunicated from the church and believers are warned not to fellowship with them if they're in rebellion to God, then they're back in Satan's domain. And that's supposed to teach them and hopefully give them a longing to be back with God and his people, amen? It's very, very powerful. And the name of this message is helping those who have shipwrecked their faith. We want to help those who have shipwrecked their faith. We don't want to shoot our wounded, amen? Now we want to be aware of their practices, their teachings, and be very careful because we're going to see later that Alexander, one of these men who fell away, or I should say Hymenaeus, was teaching that the resurrection had already come to pass, overthrowing people's faith, and his doctrine was spreading like cancer. So it's very serious to deal with rebellion in the church. In fact, the church of Laodicea, Revelation 3, 19, it says, those I love, Jesus says, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be earnest or zealous and repent. And there, that's where he says, I would that you're hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Can you imagine being spit out of the body of Christ? And it's the, he's talking about those who re refuse to respond to the discipline. But he disciplines his children. So that's number seven. Those who are disciplined by the Lord are those who had belonged to him as children. He's giving them an opportunity to get right with him. Number eight, this is a, this is a scary one, guys. One of the more I thought this through, man, I was like, man, because when you put first and second, second Timothy together, they draw an interesting picture. There's no record of Hymenaeus or Alexander returning to the faith. There's no record of Hymenaeus or Alexander returning to the faith. In other words, discipline doesn't guarantee that you will respond. In fact, in Hebrews chapter three, the Lord talks about how, in chapter 12, he talks about how he disciplines his children. In chapter three, he warns them not to harden your heart. Where you tune out the voice of the Lord and refuse to return to him, and you are hardened by your, in your heart, and you fall away from the living God because of the deceitfulness of sin. So we don't lose our free will after we get saved. Uh, in fact, the war becomes more acute. We have the Holy Spirit now that we're believers. There's no reason that we should not persevere, amen? I mean, we're given God's promises. We're given his warnings. We're given the intercession of Jesus. We're given the, the power of God's word. Amen. We're given the, 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 the warnings of, of, of Jesus to abide and how even the elect can be deceived and don't be deceived. All these warnings to what to watch out for. 
right? There's no reason we shouldn't, you know, uh, abide in Christ, amen, and commit apostasy. There's every reason to go forward. But unfortunately, there are, these are real people. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two real people that went the wrong way. So number eight, there's no record of Hymenaeus and Alexander ever returning to the faith uh, that they had shipwrecked. But number nine, which kind of bolsters the point of number eight, uh, actually the scriptures reveal that Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy. He wrote it about five years later, his second later letter, and both of these two men are still in rebellion to God. They're both mentioned in 2 Timothy, and they're, they're none the better. That's concerning to me, okay? The Bible talks about those who are often reproved can stiffen their neck and suddenly be cut off without remedy. Does that mean they absolutely did come back later? Nah, doesn't mean that either. Just means it looks like they didn't come back, but we can't be absolutely sure, amen? I've got to be fair here, okay? And can't say they absolutely didn't come back because the second, no, it looks like they didn't come back. But who knows? When I get into heaven, I was like, Hymenaeus, Alexander, weren't you? Yeah, praise God, we came back just before we died. Praise the Lord, I was worried about you guys, you know? Number 10. We shall see, and this is kind of interesting, this is what makes me think that at least Alexander probably didn't come back, is Paul says something very interesting about Alexander that's different than what he says about others who have forsaken him in Timothy. Because he talks about all have forsaken me. May God, you know, have mercy on them. But he says something different about Alexander in his second letter as though he's almost washed his hands of him. Because he's concerned in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says to be gentle with those you're trying to win back that God, perhaps God will give them repentance and they can be recovered from being taken captive by Satan at his will. See, these were those who were taken captive again after they're set free. And there's a question as to whether or not that repentance will ever happen. So, and we'll explore these, some of these things I've mentioned a little bit later, uh, but it's interesting because when we read what happened to these guys, it's uh, really, really tragic. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's see what it says about Hymenaeus. Now, it mentions Hymenaeus again in 2 Timothy 2. doesn't mention Alexander with him. It mentions Alexander a couple chapters later. But it mentions Hymenaeus, and it mentions a new guy, a new heretic, Philetus. Philetus. Verse 15 of chapter 2. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman that does not need to be ashamed or accurately handling, handling the word of truth. Amen. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Remember what happened in 1 Timothy, where they went into fruitless discussion? Ooh, isn't this interesting? Then look at verse 17. And their talk will spread like gangrene. You ever see gangrene? The word could also be, in, as in many translations, translated cancer. False doctrine is serious. It can destroy the body, spiritual body. Not Jesus, ultimately, amen, but it could destroy us. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are who? Hymenaeus. There he is again. And who? Philetus. Men who have what? Gone astray from the truth. In other words, they were once were what? In the truth. There it is again. So verse 5 or 6, they've gone astray from the, you know, our good instruction, Paul says. Verse 19 and 20, they went astray and shipwrecked their faith and, and, and left their faith and, and their good conscience. And here it says they went astray from the truth. Saying, now look what they say. Saying that what? 
The resurrection has already taken place. So they're saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now what's our hope as believers? We're waiting Jesus' return. What's the name of this church? Blessed Hope Chapel, amen? We're waiting for Jesus because when we see him, we're going to be like him. We're going to be able to be with him forever, amen? People talking, saying, wow, the rapture, it's going to be exciting. We're going to be together as believers. I'm excited about all that, but you know what I'm most excited about? I'm going to get to be with Jesus. You're going to get to be with Jesus. And we're going to see him as he is. And he says, he that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Right? So we're lo- he's looking forward to his return and we're purifying ourselves. We're sanctif- being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, amen, through faith. And as we pray and seek the Lord, the Holy Spirit changes us into the image of Christ and we're becoming more like him, amen. And our heartbeat is Jesus, 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 man. I love spending time with Jesus, you know, throughout the night. I love, I used to be bummed out when I couldn't go to sleep. Now I love that I can't go to sleep a lot because I'm busy during the day, you know. And uh, I have a lot of energy usually throughout the day, all day I- I have energy still, by the grace of God. Not my power. Like, how come you have such energy? I don't even eat good. Well, I'm eating a lot better now. I used to not eat good. I'm eating a lot better now. Kefir, berries, all kinds of stuff. Okay. But I still eat junk here and there. Lord, help me. You know? But I have a ton of energy by the grace of God. I know I could lose it too any moment. That happens, right? So, Father, give all of us strength and give us all of us energy to serve you. And, Father, even if we are, uh, whatever we're going through, we can shine the light of Christ. And we thank you for that. But I'll tell you what. It's not by your own power, you guys. Not by might nor by power, but by my what? By my spirit, saith the Lord. Amen? You rely on the Lord. You cry out to him. But these guys right here, look what they did. It's really, really, really heartbreaking. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that what? The resurrection has already taken place. We are looking forward to our resurrection. How many of you are looking forward to your resurrection? Probably the older you are, the higher you put your hand and the faster you put it up. That's me. I mean, when I was in my 20s, oh yeah, I can't wait. The resurrection would be awesome. Let's go play some tackle football now. You know? Now it's like, get up a little slower, creak a little more, a few more cracks in your face. Talk about myself, none of you, okay me or whatever he's getting older oh is his tooth loose back here and you know I don't even know I had a gland what glands or whatever you're going through you know and then you're like ah, oh, praise God I can't wait till Jesus comes back praise God the Bible says the outer man perishes day by day but the inward man is being renewed day by day and you start to focus more on the inside which is what the Lord wants us to do anyway from the get-go when we become Christians but sometimes age, it takes age to get us to focus on what really matters. But guess what? We're looking forward to the resurrection. These guys were teaching that the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection has already passed. So they were spiritualizing the resurrection. It's not a literal, physical resurrection. And by the way, most, many commentators will tell you this P- Timothy, Paul to Timothy is getting, coming against a lot of the incipient or proto-Gnosticism, early Gnosticism in the early church. And they denied a physical resurrection. And that seems to have been an influence upon Hymenaeus and Philetus. And that's a heresy. When you read the early church fathers, you read Irenaeus, or you read Tertullian, Hippolytus, some of the heavyweights, they come against the Gnostics because they deny the resurrection. And they're denying the faith. This is orthodox doctrine. The resurrection of not only Christ, our Lord. Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. you know that? One of the easiest ways to refute a Jehovah's Witness, if you're taking notes, and they come to your door tomorrow, you can call me up. I won't say, hey, when you're listening, you take a note. I'll be cool with you. 
might not get to because I turn my phone off for a few hours of time. Then I turn it on, answer my calls, turn it off for six hours of time, turn it back on, otherwise I don't get anything done, right? But if you just happen to get me when I'm checking all my calls, or you get my wife, you really need me, or you get Steve or whoever, I'm, I try to always be around somehow. But guess what? You, they, they say, no, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And they say, when he, you say, what about when he appeared to people and said, put your hand in my, in my side, Thomas, and everything. Oh, well, he manufactured a fake body to get them to believe he rose from the dead. What? In other words, he didn't rise from the dead. And he was faking them out and deceiving them to think he did rise from the dead? Makes no sense at all. In fact, Jesus, one time when they thought they'd seen a ghost, he said, see and touch me. I have flesh and bone as you do. And then in John chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. And they started murmuring. He's going to, took 38 years to build this temple and he's going to rise, destroy it and rise it up in three days. And then the Holy Spirit says through John, he spoke of the temple of his body. Amen? Amen. Jesus rose bodily. If you deny that Jesus rose bodily from the dead, I'm sorry I love you, but you're teaching heresy and you have to repent. And you can't be saved because that's a different gospel. A different gospel, Joe? Yeah, because Paul says, this is the gospel I declare to you by which I also preached to you, 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and he rose again according to the scriptures, amen? amen. So we have to hold the biblical gospel, amen? amen? And when you deny the resurrection of the believer because it says we'll be like him, right? You're denying the gospel and the effects of the gospel. And it's very serious and they were overthrowing the faith of some so they had been, their faith was shipwrecked, and guess what they were doing? They were shipwrecking the faith of others because their doctrine was spreading like gangrene. Hence, why the Apostle Paul said he put them out of the church and had them over Satan. Now, check it out. Even though they're had over Satan, they're still having an effect on the church five or so years later. Think about that. It's like, well, then it didn't even work. Yeah, it did. It mitigated to a degree what they were doing. If they were still in the church and it became accepted, the whole church would be affected. A little leaven leavens the whole lump when it talks about first, just a discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So this is very, very important that you understand. But it, it, it causes, so they were probably still, and you're going to see because it looks like Alexander, not Hymenaeus and Philetus, we're going to see Alexander, he was still affecting Paul too all these years later. So you can have somebody that refused to repent, put them out of the church, but they can still affect the church later because they're having continuing associations because certain people in the fellowship aren't distancing themselves from them and they're allowing them to have an effect on them and so what have you. So you have to be very, very careful as believers. What I'm talking to you about this evening is heavy theologically and heavy just for your devotional life, practically, how you're supposed to relate to other people, how to relate to believers how to relate to non-believers, how to relate to those who are no longer believers and they're now blasphemers or they're now speaking contrary to the faith or they're living in sexual perversion. I mean, how do you deal with those things? We're going to be talking about that, answering those questions uh, tonight. Very, very important. Now, he says they're overthrowing the faith of some. By the way, do you know that there is a heresy in the church that's very, very prevalent now called full preterism? And preterism is from a Latin word that means past. And the preterists, and there's many of them out there, they're all over the internet, they teach that uh, the resurrection has already come to pass. That there's no physical bodily resurrection for the believer in the future. If you type in full preterism, you do a search and you read about what they believe, they believe that Jesus already came back. Many of them believe we're already in the new heaven and the new earth right now. And this is it. It's like, 
that's pretty sad, you know? And I don't have time to get into preterism now, but I'm just saying that that's what this is, okay? And if we were in Timothy 2 and we're going to focus a long time on 2 Timothy 2 right now, then we'd get all into that. But we're not. We're in 1 Timothy 1.20, so i got to stay on top of where we're at. Do you understand that? Why did he get more into what they were teaching? I'm getting into a little bit, but I'll ne- we'll never get out of 1 Timothy 1, 19 and 20. Oh, no. Is that clock right? It's right. What time do we stop on Wednesday nights? I have what? Uh, 18 minutes, right? Okay, I think we're good. We're good if I just keep a good pace here. So let's understand this now. There's also another guy who's really rebellious. By the way, understand this. There's two, there's more than two, but two main reasons you practice excommunication in the church. One is to protect the church from either bad behavior. Remember the guy that always is having sex with his his mom? 1 Corinthians 5. He's he's having sex with his father's wife. Paul says, put him out of the church, right? Because he says a little bit leaven, what? Leaven's the whole lump. Amen? In other words, you leave that guy in your church, you act like it's fine that he's having sex with his mom, and you guys say, isn't Jesus good? We could do this, and it's not true. Can't do that. But everybody's going to think, I guess you can do that. That's what the message you're sending everybody. Then you pollute the entire church. Are you hearing me? That's very, very serious. You corrupt the church. Or you let Hymenaeus and Philetus in the church and they're teaching that the resurrection has already come to pass and they have a Sunday school class and there's just all kinds of confusion, right? And the people believing that, yeah, well, I mean, if we have no hope in the resurrection, basically our faith is gone, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. So one reason excommunication takes place is to protect the church from bad living and false doctrine. The second reason it takes place is remedial. To help the person that's in rebellion to God get right with God. Did you hear me? This is, you don't want to miss this. The second person, the church reason the church practices church discipline is remedial to rescue somebody from either wrong doctrine or wrong living. It's a form of discipline to bring them back. Hence, what did Paul say? I had him over to Satan so that he would what? Learn not to blaspheme. Amen? So, the, so they would learn not to blaspheme, verse 20, 1 Timothy chapter 1. What about the guy that's having sex with his mom, his father's wife? Well, what's the admonition? He says, I had him over to Satan, Paul says, because the church wasn't doing it. And Paul says to that church that you better do this. And he says, you know, when you're joined with me in spirit, I mean, I'm going to be there spiritually in some way. I'm already, I've already acted with my apostolic authority that this guy has to leave the church to expel, he said, the wicked man from your midst. And then he said this, I had him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Here he doesn't say so he learns not to blaspheme. These guys had to learn a theological lesson. Here it was a fundamental moral lesson. I've had him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might or may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, Right? So he wants him to repent. And as we'll see, he did repent. How do we know he repented? We know he repented because when you go to 2 Corinthians, I'm thinking of the clock and I want to make sure I get done, so I'm not sure how many verses I can go to, but I perhaps will go to it. But let's, let's, before we get back into Corinthians, which we're going to get into a little more because of the few verses I want to share with you along these lines, let's talk a little bit about not just Hymenaeus, but about Alexander. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
Because we mentioned Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.20, but now in 2 Timothy we see the mention of Hymenaeus and a new guy, Philetus, and then after Philetus we have in 2 Timothy 4.14, we have Alexander who was the one that was mentioned as a couplet with, part of the couplet with Hymenaeus in chapter 4 verse 14. Paul says, Alexander the what? Coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So Alexander, there's only three times the name Alexander is mentioned in the New Testament. Just three times. Once it's Alexander the Jew, when Paul is at Ephesus, which is interesting, that's where Timothy is right now. And when Paul's at Ephesus with other brothers and so many people are turning against the idols and away from worshiping Diana of Ephesus, right? Great is Artemis, right? King James, Diana, same goddess, depending on the Greeks and the Roman name. Great is Artemis, right? Of the, of the Ephesians, you know? They worshiped her. And when so many people were turning to Christ in the book of Acts, chapter 19, they were stopped, getting in, stopped worshiping all these idols. So guess what? If your business was making silver idols, which many of them would make these little silver idols, people come from all over Asia Minor and, and different parts of the Roman Empire to worship uh, Artemis there, and they'd buy these silver idols, and these guys would make a lot of money. Well, guess what? Their businesses were going bad because so many people were becoming Christians at Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul and his comrades, specifically his comrades, were getting shouted down. Uh, but it's interesting because... That Alexander was a Jew. A Jew stands up, it says a Jew by the name of Alexander. He went to speak on behalf of not Paul and the apostles, but of the Jews to these Gentile pagans. And as he started to speak, they got upset and wouldn't let him speak. That is the pagan Gentiles who were upset because Paul, the apostle and the believers were turning people away from idols to Christ. He wanted to basically, the Jew, the Jew Alexander, he had a Greek name. He wanted to say, hey, we don't agree with this Paul guy anyway either. But guess what? They, they shouted. They said, nope, you're, you're, not, you're shutting up. You're not saying a word. You're a Jew. You're, not, you're an outsider, right? And they started to have this talk about, hey, these guys are turning people away from buying our stuff. It's not good for our business, right? And all of a sudden, they started shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. Like a big mob arose, right? And then a town clerk stopped and said, hey, wait. These guys aren't, you know, you guys are taking this too far. These guys aren't robbers. They're not robbers of temples. You know, let's make sure we don't do anything rash right now because you can see they might turn from limb to limb. Paul wanted to get up there too, but he couldn't. You know, they, they, they held him back, okay, from uh, this place in Ephesus, right? There's, and the, the town clerk is using wisdom. Hey, lest we get accused of rioting here, right? And then the Roman government comes down on us. Relax, you guys. That's what was going on there. It's quite interesting. So I don't think it's that Alexander, okay? I do believe it's the same Alexander that was just mentioned because it's, it's likely, and most commentators agree, that Alexander you see in 1 Timothy 1.20 is the same Alexander here. And I agree with them. But there's a little bit more information here. He is a what? It shows his profession. What's his profession? He's a coppersmith, a metal worker. What did metal workers in Ephesus make? A lot of times they made idols. And idols were very popular. Like, for instance, we read of Demetrius in that same region. And this is uh, actually, we read in the book of Acts in uh, chapter uh, of Demetrius, we read of him in chapter 19, where the whole thing happened with Artemis. We read, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was 
bringing no little business to the craftsmen. So craftsmen were getting upset. He was getting upset. They're getting upset. Well, guess what Alexander is? He's a coppersmith. He's a metal worker. Now, why does he mention that he's a metal worker? It's likely, we can't prove it 100%. I only want to say what the scriptures say, but it's just interesting. It's very likely that he was an idol maker. It's very likely that he spiritualized things like Hymenaeus, his buddy. The resurrection is not, you know, real. Once you start spiritualizing the scripture, guess what? You create loopholes to where anything can go. You got to be very, very careful not to create loopholes because you don't like something that's taught. It's better to obey God and do what he, he, he says instead of turn and twist the word of God to match what you say. So it's just interesting. It may be that he was doing the same thing, but we do know this. He brought Paul much harm. He brought Paul much harm. And I don't have time to get into his life here totally, but if you look at the context right here in verse 12, 13, 14, which we just read verse 14 in 2 Timothy chapter 4, you'll see that Paul wants his books, he wants his, he wants his cloak, he wants his parchments that were left at Troas because he was arrested and put in prison. And when it says in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, the Lord will what repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard, he says to Timothy, against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. So he wasn't getting help from the brothers and sisters in Christ, but he said, don't hold it against them. Lord, have mercy on them. And many believe, because not time to get into the Greek, I wrote down the verb and, or, you know, the verb and everything is that it's very likely that, that Alexander the coppersmith informed, he, the, the word verb, it, it comes from the word to means to inform. Like he informed on Paul. Like he ratted Paul out, and that's why Paul was arrested, okay? And even that, with even the Greek language and so forth, doesn't prove it behind 100%, but it's interesting. It's very likely, or very possible, I should say, that he got Paul arrested. We can't be sure of that, though. Many scholars believe that. Either way, we do know this, though, for sure. He was opposed to Paul, right? He was teaching false doctrine. It was spreading like gangrene. He was pre a preterist, a full preterist of sorts, denying that the resurrection had come to pass, and it was spreading like cancer in the church. And Paul warns Timothy to watch out for him as well. But notice when Paul says, may it not be held against them, those who didn't support him. Look what he says of Alexander, the coppersmith, verse 14. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to what? His deeds. Isn't that interesting? In other words, it doesn't look like this guy's going to repent in Paul's view. That's what's scary to me. Now, it's 2 Timothy, the same guys in rebellion, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he says, may the Lord pay him according to his deeds. And that's not like he's wishing that happens, but it's like a prophetic declaration. Because he's continuing to rebel against God, God is going to, he's going to get his just desserts. He's rejecting the grace of God and the true gospel, and now he's going to have to answer for his rebellion against God. And all these should be reminders to us that you have, you have a personal responsibility before the Lord to respond to him when he disciplines you. Amen? You can't just think, well, he'll just, if he really wants me, he'll get me back. No, you have a responsibility. Uh, Non-believers can't say, well, if I come to faith, I'll come to faith. No, you need to put your trust in Jesus now. Amen? You need to make sure you are serious about following the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's quite serious. Now, I'm skipping a lot of pages. So, a few scriptures we need to at least talk about before we call tonight. I've got seven minutes here. And uh, Matthew 18, that's where Jesus talks about church discipline long before it was being practiced by the apostles. Go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 
15, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So how do you go if your brother is sinning against you? Okay, you know, and it's something where you know he's, he's deliberately doing something to hurt you, okay? You don't just think, oh, you know what? Uh, you know what, he just, that guy hasn't bathed in days and it's offending me. I'm gonna go to him privately and rebuke him for his sin. No, it has to be something that's obviously a sin. Go to him, uh, uh, show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. You don't go and say, hey, this brother's been mean to him. I'm gonna put it on the church you know, prayer chain. Hey, can you pray for Brother Frank? He's just been really wicked to me lately. No, you go to him privately, right? You go to him in love and you try to restore him privately, right? But what if he doesn't repent and he's still being wicked to you? He slit one tire, now he slit the other tire or whatever it is. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be what? Confirmed. Well, now you got one or two with you. Now it's two or three total. You gotta repent, bro. He still refuses to repent. Repent. Well, if he refuses, verse 17, to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if you're, so you bring it to the church. You say, hey, bro, we, I've gone to this guy. I brought this brother and this sister. You know, we confronted them, and he's still, he's still cheating on his wife. Bring it to the elders, bring it to the church leadership. Then we have to say, man, it's a bummer. Because what the Lord, the, the, the more he continues his rebellion, the more the Lord broadens the knowledge of who knows. And that's to get him to repent and put weight upon him to repent. So he might see the gravity of his sin. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be been, shall, now listen to this, shall have what? Shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if uh, two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in the midst of them. And I know when I was a younger Christian, all the Christians I knew would all quote, were two or three gathered in my name there. I'm in the midst of them. So we'd have two or three people. We'd go up in the hills. We'd praise God, worship, and people would quote that. He's in our midst. Well, of course he's in your midst. He's in, the, he's in the midst of you, you're just one. Did you know that? Because you have the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is in the context of church discipline. That's what's going on here. When you have a church, if it's just a few people in the church or more, when you're dealing with somebody that's in rebellion, right, and you come into agreement, symphonize is the Greek word there. It's kind of interesting, like a symphony. You all in an orchestra, all the music, music together being one. You have this agreement that this guy's in rebellion, and if you agree that the person should be out of the, put out of the church excommunicated, it's already been agreed upon in heaven. If you agree that he should be retained and recognize that his sins are forgiven, then you recognize that he is in good standing in the church. That's the same thing that we read in the Gospel of John. When it talks about if you forgive their sins, they shall be forgiven. If you don't forgive their sins, they won't be forgiven. He's not saying that you and I have the power to forgive sins. It's not for like the Catholic priests... Rome takes that out of context. Or in chapter 16, verse 19 of Matthew, where he talks about the same kind of thing, and he says, I gave you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Isn't that interesting wording? wording? Shall have been bound in heaven. It's already been bound in heaven. And whatever is loosed on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Woo, what's going on there? In other words, guess what? We're not telling God what to do. God, forgive them. God, don't forgive them. God, I forgive you. you know, no, no. 
you're recognizing that a person that's in rebellion to God, you're agreeing with the word of God. Amen? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's your will concerning this person's rebellion, Lord? Uh, what's your word say? Not you say you can't live like this. Sorry, you have to leave because you're refusing to repent of sleeping with your father's wife and you are not being forgiven while you're in rebellion. Amen? And you cannot be in the fellowship. The person repents like he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We read Paul to accept him back and comfort him and confirm your love to him and forgive him for we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. In other words, we need to love mercy. When someone repents, you don't shake your head. I've never seen how that person again because I can't believe what he did a year ago. Woo, then you won't be forgiven. Amen? You need to forgive him. You need to forgive her who's repented and gotten right with Jesus. Are you with me? We have to forgive. So the scriptures about the keys to the kingdom and admitting people are re and retaining or what so forth regarding sin, it has to do with church discipline. Two or three gathered together. Are you with me? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, I have already decided apostolic authority. Put that wicked man out of your midst. Amen? You know what he says? Jesus says, if he doesn't listen to you, truly I say to you, or he says to consider him what? At the very end of verse 17. Let him be to you as what? A Gentile and a tax collector. That means he's not going to have good standing in the church. He's saying that to the Jewish mind. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, the guy who's having sex with his father's wife, what did he say to him? Do not sit with him and eat lunch. Don't eat with him, not lunch. He says, just don't eat with him. Are you obeying that? If someone's in rebellion to God and they're claiming to be Christian, but they don't want to repent, you're not supposed to sit and eat with them. Well, then Paul says, I'm not saying this about the lost people in the world, he goes on to say, the drunkards and the thieves and everybody else. He goes, because otherwise then you'd have to leave the world. So with the people in the world, you're, you work around people like that. You still eat with them and everything. But he's saying a so-called brother, a guy that's claiming to be your brother, but now, I don't know if you're a brother now. I don't think you're walking with Jesus now. You don't pat them in the back and act like they're heaven bound. Understand? Why? Because guess what? If I'm in rebellion to God and you're treating me like I'm your brother, I think I'm going to heaven. And that's the deception Paul warns about in 1 Corinthians 6, the very next chapter. Don't be deceived. Fornicators and drunkards and homosexuals and, and revilers and extortioners and thieves and so forth will not inherit the kingdom of God. If having a homosexual, look at the whole list. Don't be deceived. They're not entering the kingdom of God. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So you don't want to make people think you are not showing love. Well, I'm just a really loving guy. I know the guy's having sex with his father's wife, but I just hang out with him and show him I love him and eat with him all the time because I'm a loving guy. That's not love. You're sending him the message that he's okay with God. And guess what? He's supposed to be delivered over Satan, but he's not being delivered over Satan totally because you're bringing the power of the Spirit and the gentleness and love of the Spirit to him as though it's fine. That doesn't mean you would never sit with him. I'm not contradicting myself. If you're on a mission to reach him, which we ought to be, amen, because guess what you do with tax gatherers and Gentiles? You preach the gospel to them, amen? amen. So you also don't say, well, God's done with you. No, he's supposed to learn not to blaspheme or he's supposed to repent and stop sleeping with his father's wife, amen? So you say, hey, you need to come back. So if you're having that conversation with him, that's okay, I believe. But if you're acting like everything's fine, that's not okay. And Paul says he came back in 2 Corinthians chapter two. I love that. See, it's cool because in Timothy, they don't seem to come back. In Corinthians, the guy does come back. God gives us a couple different examples there. I think that's really, really beautiful balance. He's letting us know sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't, but we got to do, do our job. But they didn't all come back because in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he warns that some are getting drunk still. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. He says some are getting sick and even dying when they take the Lord's Supper and they're being disciplined by the Lord. Why? 
so they won't be condemned by the, with the world. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So they can repent and not be condemned with the world. So they can come back to Jesus. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I'm going to come with a rod because some of you still haven't repented of your sensuality and of your fornication. He lists a bunch of things. Then in chapter 13, 5, he says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Christ is in you unless you are reprobate. Wow. Powerful warnings. Guys, I'm, I'm preaching you the word of God, trying to give you a, a kind of a, a broader understanding of this whole subject matter in one message so you'll understand that this is serious stuff. Blessed Hope Chapel here in our fellowship and the other Blessed Hopes that are connected to us in live streams, we believe in church discipline. It would be a very horrible thing if I never disciplined my children. Be a very uh, horrible thing if people can come to this fellowship and people could hit on each other's wives and steal each other's money and get drunk and party. And it would be no different than the world. We wouldn't be a church. We'd be a leavened group of, of, you know, false converts and fallen converts. And it would be a very, very tragic thing. I have a whole page and a half or two, three more pages left of applications and what the scriptures say about not fellowshipping with certain people, and I might have to do a part two in this because these are golden verses, but we'll see. Uh, But you got the message tonight, right? Amen? It's a sad thing, but it's it's hard when my wife and I have to discipline the kids through the years, right? It's tough, you know? Holly just got a bad spanking last night, you know? No, I'm just kidding. She's in her, if you don't know Holly, she's, uh, well, how old is she now? She's up there, man. She's She's got to be in her late 20s at least, you know. Uh, but it's tough. You, talk, you have that talk about how do we do this and how do we go about it, you know, and are we administering proper discipline with our children, you know. Now we have grandchildren, you know, and we're not the primary discipliners, but you love them. We have to have these family talks, amen. The best thing to do is stay away from sin, you guys. Hate sin, love Jesus. The easiest way to stay away from sin is look, at, look to Jesus. Look how beautiful he is, how wonderful he is, what he's done for you. Why would you want to grieve the Holy Spirit? Why would you want to break the heart of the one who made you and gave himself for you, amen? Make the job of the leadership here at Blessed Hope a lot easier. Make your life a lot more blessed and don't be in rebellion to God, amen? We love you guys. We just want a healthy fellowship, amen? Hate sin, love Jesus. Hate sin, Love Jesus, amen? Amen. And guess what? If you get away from him, he loves you, man. And he sends the hounds of heaven after you, man, to bring you back. But don't harden your heart to where you no longer, don't let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and falling away from the living God, amen? All right, can we all please stand?